Molasso. This afternoon we'll move into further territory in the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. This time we'll follow a very classic uh, procedure or method taught by the Buddha himself, recorded in the Pali language. As we cultivate loving-kindness, the degree of depth that the practice has really correlates directly to the, the degree of wisdom that we can bring to it. It can be as superficial as just meditating there until one feels a kind of a really nice, kind of warm and friendly feeling. In other words, the practice of loving-kindness could just be an exercise in the cultivation of one's own hedonic pleasure. Hedonic pleasure beings, any, any type of pleasure, happiness that arises independence upon a pleasant stimulus. And so one is sitting there thinking very lovely, loving thoughts, happy thoughts, and then one feels good. It's nice, but really I don't see any reason to call it anything other than hedonic pleasure. You stop thinking those thoughts and it goes away. Right? And it may be, even if it really does start attending to, that is in the practice, we really start attending to the well-being of others with a genuine sense of caring. Uh, if it really kind of tops out or reaches its maximum, simply focusing on hedonic well-being, may everybody be healthy, not have any illness, be, have enough to eat, clothing, shelter, and all of that, have success in business and healthy chil children and happy marriage and so forth. All of those are good things. Of course, it won't happen. People do get sick, they do die, and so forth. And so it remains fairly at a super superficial level. The more insight, the more wisdom we can bring to this, then there is really kind of a merging between skillful means and wisdom. And the, the cultivation of loving-kindness can really be an enactment of deepening wisdom. But for this, we really need to envision and have a clearer sense of what are the possibilities of being a sentient being. What does it mean to be a sentient being? Within that, to be a human being. What are the possibilities? What's the range? What might we envision or imagine that is still realistic? Right? And then within human being, since a lot of you have such a good uh, foundation and, and background in Dharma, really, uh, between Michael Conklin and Tony Karam, a lot of you are very well prepared with excellent teachers from outside, you know. Uh, and so, not only what is our capacity as human beings, but then speaking right from, you know, unabashedly from a Buddha's perspective, not only as human beings, but as human beings with this precious human existence of leisure and opportunity, of freedom and opportunity. In 2010, with the teachers we have available, with the degree of vitality that is still present in the Buddha Dharma, our health, our living circumstances. What does it mean to be well and happy? What are our potentials? How high might we aim as we envision our own and others' well-being? So to just pinpoint one of many excellent traditions within the Buddhist tradition, which is one of many one, one tradition of many excellent ones, the contemplative traditions in Christianity, Taoism, Christianity, all have great merits. Oh, but within Buddhism, there are so many prophecies about Dzogchen, for example, that when things are really, really rotten, you know, when things are really corrupt, really degenerate, that's a time when Dzogchen really can take off, you know? And I don't need to even point to a single headline. I think we're all perfectly aware, if you're, if you're engaged with any of the media, then you don't need me to, me to, me to remind you of, really, what uh, deep trouble we're in on so many accounts. So that's all that needs to be said on that. 
And in the midst of that, might we, like a, like a lotus emerging from the mud, might we emerge and really tap into the deepest potentials of our very existence? And is there anything on the spiritual path that is not possible for us here? One easy error we can fall into is to consider, well, let's see, first of all, when I was born, did any flowers fall from the sky? Were there any llamas hovering around saying, finally, you've arrived? <laughs> no. Was I identified when I grew up? Oh, it's a tuku, and when I shipped off to Tibet or India, Nepal? No. Have I had extraordinary dakinis and, and vi visions of Buddhas and so forth and pure lands and, and spontaneous eruptions of bodhicitta and realization of Empires and Rikpa? The error is to judge the future on the basis of the past. If you clicked in on Milarepa's life, in the early part of his life, you'd say, this is going to be a real one sad, sad character. Started off bad, got worse. Right? And becomes the most beloved, renowned of all the yogis in Tibet. In terms of our capacities, how ripe we are, you know, how close to the surface is our potential to achieve shamatha, vipassana, follow the path of Dzogchen, or other, the other wonderfully viable paths, stage regeneration, completion, and so forth. We cannot judge. And that is because so much of the groundswell, so much of the, the hidden potential is coming from our past lives. You know? But here we are. We must have been done something okay to, to land in a place like this, you know? Uh, there it is. There's some really good karma, some very good merit is manifesting now. But to consider, you know, as we envision our own and others' well-being and the cultivation of loving-kindness, to let your imagination soar, to move from the realm of actuality, which is what you know to be true thus far, until this day, this year, that's actuality. But how about later this afternoon? And for the next seven and a half weeks, and for the next decade, and two and three, four decades, for some of you, especially the young, what are the possibilities? Cannot tell. Cannot tell. We cannot, it, it, it's just no good, it's completely misleading to think, oh, I can predict based upon what I've experienced thus far. Because so much is hidden, so much is there. So what can we do? Well, the way to find out what that potential is, to realize it to the fullest poss possible to say degree, is simply to apply our minds and our hearts and our whole being to the, cult to the practice of Dharma as much as we can. And whatever potential is there will then have the best chance to manifest. And whether we are going to be kind of on a slower trajectory or a faster trajectory, if we are leading our lives in that way, just utterly and totally focused on, as Dom Dumba said, giving up attachment to this life and letting our minds become Dharma, during sessions and in between sessions, then whatever our karmic momentum is from past lives, we'll be gaining great karmic momentum in this lifetime. And so should we not achieve rainbow body in this lifetime, then we'll be one of those kids with next, in the next lifetime that's coming in turbocharged. You know, like little oh, Lama Zuvarambache, some of you are FBMT students, little Lama Zuvarambache, age two or three, going into full lotus, facing the wall like Bodhidharma, you know, age two or three. Maybe he came in with some good horsepower from the past life, what do you think? And then trying to run off to his cave, went as a toddler where he had meditated in his past life, up in the Himalayas, you know. So come in like that. And I understand from multiple sources, he doesn't sleep, 
He's just one 24-7 total dharma. He's either teaching, he's meditating, he's writing, but whatever it is, there's just, I don't think there's any part of him that's not dharma. Looks like to me, it's just like 100%, 24-7. Well, he came in, he was a great Dzogchen practitioner, a little serious Dzogchen meditator, last, last, last lifetime. Nyingmapa. He's not a pure gulupa. <laughs> Thank goodness. I want everybody to be impure. If you're a Nyingmapa, then be a little bit gulupa. If you're gulupa, be sakyapa. If you're Mahayana, be Theravada. If you're Theravada, be Zen. If you're Zen, be Christian. Just that it's virtue. That's all that matters. So in this cultivation of loving kindness in this session, let's let the imagination soar. Let's let not be hampered by the imagination limitations of the modern world, which are so, so locked into, almost like an intellectual and spiritual straitjacket, almost as if we've thrown ourselves into a dungeon. And I'm not pointing at any, any person here or there, but from multiple sides, and I think I won't elaborate, but from multiple sides, it's as if, and I speak only lightly, as if, as if there's a conspiracy, don't aspire too high. Don't aspire too high. You know, There's a set, I've, I've read one psychologist saying, oh, there's a set point. You get to your set point of happiness, you can't go on be a, and beyond that. Matthew Ricard's written a whole book to demolish that. What a horrible idea. You know, That no matter how much you strive, well, of course, all they're doing is expressing the limitations of their own imagination. And all they know about is hedonic pleasure. So that's too bad for them. But then when authority, what such people then say, okay, folks, I'm speaking from Harvard, from Yale, from Stanford or whatever, and this is what I'm telling you. There's a set point beyond which you cannot transcend in terms of happiness. So don't try for too much. Because after all, you're only human. Oh, one of the saddest phrases I've ever heard. You're only human. Missing out on really what it means to be human. So let's go back. We'll start from the, from the center and move out in all directions. Please find a comfortable position. As, with, as if with a sigh of relief. Breathe out and let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. <coughs> Settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant, taking three, taking three deep breaths if you find that helpful.
relax deeply into every out-breath as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, be it long or short, fast or slow, even or uneven. Let the body breathe without intervention, without regulation, without preference. Settle your mind in its natural state, at ease, still, and clear. Now let's move from the realm of actuality, witnessing with bare attention the sensations of the breath, moving from this realm of actuality and what is already real into the realm of possibilities of what could become real. But there are realities that become real if and only if we believe in them first. This is an ancient truth. 
There are some things that become true. Only if we embrace them as, a pro- as true and apply our lives to them. So envision now, once again, your own flourishing. Not limiting your imagination by your experiences of the past. If that were true, nothing would ever change. We'd only have reruns of the past. But that is not true. So moving from the fertile ground of your past, both in meditative experience and life at large, envision now what would bring you the greatest happiness, the greatest sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, the greatest meaning. With each out-breath, arouse the strength, the strength of your spirit. In Finnish, this is called sisu, in Tibetan, semshuk, the strength of your heart. Be bold as you breathe out, arouse this yearning. May I realize such well-being. May I be truly well and happy. You may simply breathe out this aspiration of loving kindness. You may, if you wish, visualize your own Buddha nature, the pristine purity of your own awareness, primordial consciousness as an orb of light with light emanating from that, filling your whole being. In either case, with each outbreath, arouse this yearning. May I be truly well and happy and cultivate the causes of genuine happiness.
with each out-breath, imagine this becoming so. Imagine hearing now, here and now, realizing such well-being. Imagine your whole being filled with this light of loving-kindness, of joy, of purity. Your body as a body of light. Then following the counsel of the Buddha himself, let this field of loving-kindness gradually expand above and below and to all the sides. If there's someone right in front of you, bring this person vividly to mind. With each out-breath, breathe out this aspiration, may you like myself, be well and happy. May your heart's desire be realized. And breathe out this breath or this light of loving kindness, embracing this person in this field. And likewise for the person to the left, to the right, if there's someone behind you, behind you.
with each out-breath. Expand this field of loving-kindness outwards in all directions. Attending to each sentient being within the field. Each one having the capacity to realize perfect awakening. If only all the causes and conditions are brought together, the inner potential is already there. Expand this field of loving-kindness to embrace and suffuse everyone in this room. May each one here find the happiness that is our heart's desire. each out-breath, imagine it to be so. And now expand beyond the artificial boundaries of this room, <coughs> out over the valley, the surrounding countryside, 
with the awareness that every sentient being, human and non-human, each one seeks happiness, pleasure. Each one wishes to be free of suffering, of pain. Let the field of loving-kindness expand with each out-breath, wishing each one well. May each one be well and happy. Wish each one genuine happiness and then imagine it to be so. Continue expanding this field in all directions. And as you do so, do this with the awareness that some are devoting their lives to, to virtue, while others are not. And some are actively devoting themselves to evil, acting out of delusion, craving, hostility, sowing the seeds for their own and others' misery but all stemming from delusion and ignorance. Some are pleasant and some unpleasant, attractive and unattractive, but each one like ourselves wishes for happiness and freedom from suffering, and each one has the capacity of perfect awakening. Wish each one well, you without ever with with every outbreath continue to expand this field of loving kindness north south east and west above and below
or lasso. It's common knowledge in spiritual traditions around the world that if there's a person who has really become embodied with such qualities of loving kindness and compassion, just embodies them, such a person, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Padmasambhava, the Buddha Shakyamuni, or others more recent in time, that they bless the environment itself. That's why we have speak of holy places. The holy places is not in the molecules. It's not in a geological formation. It's because someone was there and left an imprint on the land. <coughs> and it, can, can, it may continue to bless people in, experience, in experienceable ways, in experiential ways. Oh, for years or even decades or centuries afterwards. And all out of the power of loving kindness and compassion. It can actually influence the land itself. Quite amazing, isn't it? It's not fiction. It's not superstition. It's not just some kind of imagination. It's, it's actually true. That's why so many smart people believe it. Buddhist, Christian, Hindu. They're not all stupid. So, loving kindness can actually influence the land itself. It's said when there's not only one individual, but a communities of individuals that are really cultivating loving kindness, it influences the nature around, the crops, the land, other sentient beings, non-human beings. One of the primordial powers of nature manifesting through ourselves. So, whether we spend one minute cultivating it or a lifetime, certainly time very well spent. What else do we have to do? Hola, so there's one quick and very reasonable request here I'd like to relay and I would like to endorse. And I don't need to read it, I already read it. And that is, um, this is a meditation room, and so if this can be used just for meditation, uh, apart from the time that we're talking and discussion, guided meditations, if this can be a silent place, and silent means also free of the noise of click, 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 or shh, that is computers taking notes, writing notes and so forth, even though that's very, very quiet, nevertheless, you can imagine if you're meditating and ten, ten feet away, somebody's going tap, 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 tap. It's a bit distracting. So if this can just be a quiet place, just quiet for meditation, that'd be very nice. There are plenty of other places. There's a library. You can click, click, click there. Or your own room, of course. Okay? That's a reasonable request. So how's your practice going? Anything coming up? You're, you're not bound here. We can leave right now if there's nothing coming up. But if there is, that's what we're here for. How's it going? Oh, yes. Jessica. And we'll get you the, uh, the microphone. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for um, these teachings, which kind of demystify shamatha for me. Oh, <laughs> I good. really appreciate that. Sure. My question is in regard to shamatha, um, paying attention to the apertures of the nostrils. Right. Um, I feel like I can, it's very subtle what I can detect there, mm. and it changes, and sometimes I can't detect anything mm -hmm. at all. Yes. Um, and I mean, I have a rather deviated septum. I don't know if it's because of that. I you'll, really don't. You'll, ex uh, you'll achieve a very special type of shamatha. <laughs> deviated septum shamatha. Very powerful. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but it, it almost feels like it just isn't going to work 
for uh -huh. me. Uh -huh. And so I don't know if I should just keep playing around with it, see if it'll, if it feels right, if I start to be able to detect it more over time, mm -hmm. or just drop it and find something else that works better for me. I think the best would be to have a nose transplant. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's not possible, then let's think about other alternatives. Um, well, I'm keeping my nose. I, I have a nice big one, so it's quite easy to practice. <laughs> um, here's something you might try, and that is as you're practicing the mindfulness of breathing, uh, on occasion you will pick up the sensations of the breath flowing in. Usually you're going to find one easier than the other. Either the sensations of the in-breath are a bit more distinct, or the out-breath a bit more distinct, one or the other. Probably you'll find it easier. But then in between that, in between the clear rush of the breath, uh, the flow of the breath in or out, in between those sessions, those periods, um, see if you can't pick up sens some sensation. Now it has nothing to do with deviated septums or anything else. It has to do with having nerve endings at the tip of the nose or above the upper lip. See if you can simply detect kind of background radiation, which is to say the sensations that are there, whether or not you're breathing. So for example, just, just hold your hand up and there's no breath coming in, a, in and out of your hand. And now just focus your, your attention on your, the tip of your index finger. You pick up something, yeah? And so there are nerve, they're, they're signaling you. There are sensations arising there, just a finger hanging out there in midair with no particular wind, no breeze or anything else. So as you have nerve endings right there at the tip of the finger, so do you have nerve endings there at the apertures of the nostrils whether or not there's any breath passing, passing in or out. And so, see if you can detect that. What's the background? So I call background radiation. When there's no added on sensation of the breath flowing in or out, isn't there already some sensation? And can you tap into that? Now that will, be, that will require a certain degree of subtlety, not extraordinary, but not dull either. Some degree of subtlety of attention to be able to pick up that level of sensation. But if you are, then you always have something you can attend to, even if there's a long pause after the out-breath, or a relatively short pause after the in-breath, whatever it may be, there's always something to attend to there. Okay, So that would be a way to step forward, that there's always something to attend to. And when you sense that there is nothing there, I will simply tell you there is something there, but what is there is subtler than your current level of awareness, and all you need to do is elevate the current level of awareness until you click, until there's an engagement, and then you can continue going from there. Okay? So that's to that particular, um, how do you say, challenge. It's a good challenge, because to develop shamatha does call for an enhancement of the vividness of attention, the acuity of attention. And having said that, um, tomorrow we'll venture into another whole mode of practicing shamatha, settling the mind in its natural state. And so you'll have ample opportunity over the coming days and weeks to just try on, you know, which is most effective for you. And it may be that this, you really just click with this mindfulness of breathing when you, when you identify, when you lock onto that background radiation, and then it just goes smooth as silk afterwards. That could be, you know, maybe it will, will really turn out to be a good long-term <laughs> practice for you. And you may find that you so well engage or click with either settling the mind or awareness of awareness that you would want to maybe only just uh, minimize 
the mindfulness of breathing. Maybe do a classic Tibetan style. 21 breaths, and now let's get on with it and do some other practice. So you have multiple options here. I have no doubt in my mind at all that uh, there will be something, even among just these three techniques, something that will fit. Yeah, no problem. Okay? Thank you very much. Sure. Anything else come up? Oh, I have one. Yeah, John. Um, could you say some things about uh, length of practice sessions and whether we should be making an effort to increase them? And we've been we've been doing these twenty-four minute increments, but and sometimes we do back to back twenty-four minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but is there some other strategies that we maybe should be experimenting mm -hmm. with? Yeah. No. Thank you for raising the question. Um, very good and very important for all of us here. First of all, I would say it would be as each of us is evaluating how long each session should be, now that we really have nothing else to do besides devote ourselves to Dharma, so we have a lot of time on our hands, in, in, in effect. Um, I would avoid the verb should, like, okay, I'm doing 24, maybe, maybe, I should, maybe I should 27, 30, 35, maybe I should be doing longer, maybe I should, should. Think probably the wrong ambience, like, like, like you should breath your teeth. You really should. If you don't, you know, bad breath, teeth fall out. You know, you really should, whether you like it or not, you really should. And so there are shoulds in the world, but should doesn't carry over into how long the session should be. Okay? Or maybe, or can be most optimally, optimally beneficial. So, to respond to the question then, but the ambience is all important. That we're not kind of like, you know, cracking the whip here, I should be doing this, and I should be progressing, I should be doing this or that or the other thing. Uh, moreover, I should be practicing more hours per day. I'm only doing six and a half. I'm only doing what I should be. Uh, this is like, you know, when they serve ice cream here, I'm not thinking, I really should have three scoops today. <laughs> you know, I, I really feel I should. Because two, I mean, the, the ice cream might get stale. It could happen, you know. Nobody else seems to like ice cream, and there it is, all that ice cream just going stale because I'm not eating enough ice cream. So I could have that attitude, but you know, I don't. And so like with ice cream, likewise for the duration of sessions. Um, here's something very practical. And that is, assuming you do have a motivation, as you begin each session, there really is a yearning, a, a happiness, an aspiration. Yep, that's what I came for. Let's, let's get to it. Get a nice, comfortable position and start away. In those first 30 seconds, the level of interest, the level of engagement, what am I here for? I flew all the way here to Phuket to practice shamatha. So let's, let's go for it. That level of engagement for the first 30 seconds of attending to the object and knowing full well this practice is not very likely to gonna go perfectly on the first sessions. Otherwise, you know, who would ever practice shamatha? You just start it, you would accomplish it and then move on to something else. You know, you'd be perfect from day one. So the cultivation of shamatha is knowing that the mind is imbalanced and this is to bring balance to the mind, and it comes gradually. But what I'm talking about is, in other words, this is very important, not judging how well is it going, to focus on what we can control rather than what we can't control. What I can control is what's my level of interest. That I can control, right? And if I'm not interested, don't practice. Take a walk, do something else. But I can, I can really have some influence right now if I'm going to practice. Okay, what's my level of interest? Very high. Let's go for it. 
And then my recollection, what's going to be my practice? Okay, I'm going to focus on the apertures of the nostrils. What is mindfulness? I remember, it's non-forgetting. It's continual engagement with the object. What is introspection? Monitoring the flow. What are the problems? Excitation and laxity. What are the, what are the remedies? Loosening up and returning, arousing and focusing. So there it is. That's the, that's the core instruction right there. And so the level of interest as I attend to the, attend to the practice the level of interest as I arouse my, not only mindfulness, but introspection, and I am indeed monitoring the flow of mindfulness, keeping an eye open for the occurrence of either laxity or excitation, applying the antidotes, so am I really fully engaged? The level of engagement you have for the, for the first 30 seconds should be very similar to the level of engagement you have for the last 30 seconds. In other words, the interest, the level of engagement, the level of dedication to the practice is not tapering off until finally during the last five minutes when it's just sloppy, kind of just slogging along waiting for the time to finish and then you kind of poop out and say, okay, that was the end of one session. So that's really the wrong way to go. So with that in mind, that the level of engagement, of interest, of applying the knowledge one has to the practice is fairly constant throughout. That's really the critical point. So whether it's one hour, if you can maintain that level of interest, and that's probably in vernacular, that's probably the best way to say it. How interested you are you in this practice? Now, here, here, here again is an interesting point. William James brought this out. And that is, um, if somebody's telling you a fascinating story, or maybe you're reading a fascinating, absolutely page-turning type of novel, you know, you just can't put it down. You can't, you can't even get to sleep. You have to read more. Then your attention is focused because the novel is just so interesting. It's just one of those, you know, page turners. And so the focus, the stability, the continuity, the vividness is all there. Why? Because it's being evoked from the side of the object, right? Or there are things that are thrilling, riding a motorcycle at high speed. I know what that's like. You don't fall asleep while you're... <laughs> you don't fall asleep, you know? Uh, with a hundred mile an hour wind in your face, yep, that keeps you awake. And so there are some things objectively, a fascinating or a thriller movie or just a magnificent movie, piece of art, and so forth. So there's sometimes the attention is very much engaged because it's being evoked by the nature of the object. Now, in this practice that we've done for the last three days, mindfulness of breathing? Boy, is that not interesting. <laughs> Whoa. We've maxed out on uninteresting. Whoa, what could be less interesting than... And do that for 24 minutes. Hoy, hoy, hoy. <laughs> and so this is not a page turner. Okay? This is, this is, this is a blank book. Ooh. <laughs> a journal yet to be written. You know? <laughs> and so William James pointed this out, that sometimes our attention may be fully engaged because, again, it's a thrill or novel or what have you, or something enormously pleasurable, exciting, thrilling, and so forth. On the one hand, on the other hand, and he's speaking, you know, as a person really didn't have a meditative practice as far as we know. But he said we may be, there's a, a, there can be a meta level, a meta level of interest that although we're not fascinated by what we're directly attending to, we're, we're very drawn to the, something one step removed. So I think if I remember correctly, it's been some years since I read him, but let's imagine that one has a great aspiration to become a medical doctor and apply oneself to, let's say, going to a third world country and healing people who are suffering terribly. Leprosy or whatever, any other type of terrible disease. And that's the motivation. And maybe you already know, I'd like to go to Africa and help those who are suffering from HIV and full-blown AIDS. 
and that's it. You know? Well, for that, if that's the trajectory, that's what, that's what I really want to do. That would give my life meaning. That's what I want to do, and I want to do it well. In the meantime, as you're getting your medical training, you'll be learning about a lot of things that do not directly pertain to AIDS or the treatment of AIDS. You'll be learning about gallbladder and kidney and blood circulation and other kind of stuff. You say, well, I, do I, I don't think I really need to know this stuff. Maybe you'll be getting a lot of chemistry and a lot of other stuff. But you're really interested in getting a medical degree. That's what you're really interested in. Because you cannot do that without a medical degree. They won't want you. And so you really want to do that. And because you really want to do that, you really want to get a medical degree. And you want to graduate well. And in order to do that, you have to study whatever they're dishing up. You can't just say, no thanks, I'm going to skip the chemistry. No thanks, I don't want to know about gallbladder. Whatever. You can't do that. You ha it has to be consistent. So on occasion, in a medical training, what you're reading may be really interesting, and other times, maybe zero interest. This was, for me, the case when I was studying physics at Amherst College. What I really wanted to do was study the ontological foundations of modern physics. That's what I was really interested in. Quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, the nature of the, of the energy of empty space, that's what I was really interested in. But to do that legitimately, that is not new age, not fluffy, then I had to study mechanics. I had to study advanced calculus. I had to study advanced mechanics. I had to do... I remember the real, the real... Oh, man. It was take two pendulums, two pendula, and have one like that, and then draw the up, one up and let it knock into the other one. And so now they're both in oscillation. Where are the two pendulum balls after five minutes? Oh, man, I can't tell you how massively I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I, among the things I don't care about, this would be almost the pinnacle <laughs> of I really don't care. But we only had three problems per week to solve, and that was one of them. And if I totally bombed out on that one, well, that pretty much trashes that week. And if I'm going to just only do the problems I find interesting, well, frankly, I didn't find much at all of interest in advanced mechanics. It's Newtonian. It's, it's, it's supposed to be mechanical. It is mechanical. But I was really interested in, in the larger agenda. And so you, know, you do the work. So that's what I'm saying here. Taking a step back, I'm actually more interested in the tactile sensations of the breath than I am about the movement of those pendulums. Okay? <laughs> so this is quite fascinating compared to you know, pendulums going back and forth. Um, then this is why we sometimes use the, the zoom lens to go to wide, wide angle. We don't go down, to, down the rabbit hole into how interesting is this breath and this breath and that breath. But what's the point of mindfulness of breathing? Develop greater sanity, relaxation, stability, vividness. What's the point of that? to tap into the inner wellsprings of genuine happiness so that we're not simply reliant like junkies on one more stimulus after the other. We really develop some independence, some autonomy that we can flourish without everything going our way. We're not held hostage by our past karma or by good luck and bad luck, the vicissitudes of the world around us, which is to totally out of control. That we actually develop some autonomy of leading a, a meaningful and satisfying life. That's why. What's big deal about that? Shamatha can be the stage to sh vipassana. Vipassana can actually dispel irreversibly the, the afflictions of the mind. What's the big deal about that? This can lead to liberation. What's the big deal about that? How about tapping into the deepest dimension of awareness altogether, becoming a Buddha? Why not? 
the wide-angle lens becomes enormous. And it's almost like, get me back to that breath quickly. Because <laughs> I'm now taking a step along that trajectory. So the interest doesn't have to be in this sensation and that sensation. The interest is in the bigger picture. Yeah. So that's how we arouse interest. Now, that we can cultivate, that we can modify. We have some control over the depth, the scope, the vividness of our own vision about the significance of such practice. That we can really manage. How well the practice goes from one session to the next session, how much excitation, how much dullness, we can't simply control that. We can do sensible things like watching diet, exercise, the duration of sessions, how cool or hot we are. But how is it going to go tomorrow? Will, will we come down with bronchitis? Well, that wasn't exactly what you wanted when you came here. That's what you got dished up. It too will pass. But we don't control that. Right? That just happens. So what's enormously important here is not to let our degree of inspiration, our interest and so forth, rise and fall simply in dependence upon how well did the last session go. You know, that's just, that's like, I don't know, self-defeating. Taking that step back and say, all right, a lot I can't control. Do I have enormous karmic momentum from past life that I'm going to whip through shamatha like, like, a hot nut, like a hot knife through soft butter? Or, is it gonna be, or, or are there going to be many obstacles along the path? A lot of impurities, negativities, and so forth coming, coming to the light of consciousness before I can actually achieve shamatha? Over that, I've got no control. I have no control. But what is my dedication to practice from moment to moment to moment, day to day? Over that, I have some control. So it's a level of interest. So now I come back and answer shortly. It's a level of interest. So if you find that at some point, you know, whether it's 15 minutes, 24 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, or what have you, that you're just feeling a little bit of fatigue coming on, kind of like the level of engagement is tapering off, what I would suggest is note when that is, whether it's 24 minutes in or 30 or whatever, and stop before then. Don't stop when you're already losing interest, because that means every time you end, it's going to be with a lack of interest. And that will make an imprint. Okay? So see that, well, how long can you really sustain that, one can say, enthusiasm, that interest, that dedication to the practice, and sustain it within that parameter and don't go, go beyond it. Right? Now, as, you, as the practice starts getting, building its own momentum, you may find that you know, after 24 minutes has gone by, you're kind of in this flow, and you actually are beginning like this little percolation of enjoyment is starting to come up. Like, I'd rather continue than not. Do I really have to stop? And when you see that's coming up repeatedly, then don't restrain it and allow yourself a bit more time. And in that way, you'll go from 24 minutes to however long. Works out. Okay? One further little thing is that. Sure. Should you do that in a fairly progressive manner, or if you have interest twice or three times as long in one session than another, should you just just uh, go until that point? Seems like a good point to end, or yeah, should, should you? Uh, good. Now, now, once again, is a time to raise the theme of middle way and balance. They're basically two words for the same thing. <coughs> um, how do we find the middle way? I can tell you. We find the middle way by bumping off of the extremes. We don't find the middle way by just finding the middle way and staying there. Just overall, I mean, the middle way theme comes up all over the place. 
But in my experience, and I think it's many other people's experience, we find the middle way by colliding off the extremes and colliding less and less and less. And so let's identify the extremes. And that is all right, today I'm beginning my practice. It's whatever o'clock in the morning. And I'm going to meditate as long as I really enjoy it. But as soon as I don't enjoy it anymore, I'm stopping. I'm out of here. I'm going to go swimming. It's open from 6 till 7 o'clock at night. And nobody's watching. And all I have to do is show up here for half an hour and an hour and a half in the afternoon. And otherwise, you know, if I don't enjoy it, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm in Phuket, after all. This is a vacation paradise. So there's one extreme, is I'm only going to meditate when it feels good. Right? There's one. And the other extreme is, I said eight hours, you idiot. <laughs> and you will meditate eight hours, and you will like it, and you will be interested, or I'm going to beat the crap out of you. So keep it going, and do not ever let me down, or you're going to be sorry. You're going to be so sorry. You know? <laughs> right? So strict, you know, too rigid, uptight. It's got to be this many, this many, this many. Something in between there. So as an overall theme, it's helpful to maintain continuity, maintain, helpful to maintain a rhythm, maintain something of a schedule. I've spent a number of years in solitary practice. I find it very, very helpful to have just overall a daily rhythm. Number one, now, just for myself, I never set the alarm. I never do. I, I, I really wake up, and I start practicing when I feel fresh. So sometimes I surprise myself. This morning, I slept until 5.30. I was really very surprised. Because that hasn't happened for a long time. But I needed it. Okay, so 5.30 it is. Normally it's considerably earlier than because I go to bed early. But this morning, two hours earlier, two hours later, I said, okay, if that's what's necessary, carry on. And then I just started at 5.30. Right? So I'm not going to beat myself up over that. If that's how much sleep the body needed last night, probably it will need less this night. But whatever it is, I'll wake up when I'm good and ready, you know, when I've slept out. So I think that's, actually, I think it's not just an opinion. I think it's a good idea. Get enough sleep, first of all. And then you start the day. But I know from my own experience that having some kind of regularity to it, something of a schedule, and saying, overall, I'm going stick to with, stick with this. So now I'm looking for the middle way. Overall, here's the pattern. Here's the rhythm. Here's the duration that I think I can, prop, I can handle and be quite happy about it, ending on a high note that, yes, good. I was there all the way through. So having a schedule. So now we're, we're avoiding the extreme of just whenever I feel like it for however long it feels good. We're avoiding that one. Having to set the schedule, though, on occasion, if, if you're just in a flow, I mean, it just, it's like, oh, I've been waiting for a session like this one, then go, you know, let it go on a bit. Go on a bit. And on other occasions, and equally, equally, on some occasions, if you just see, if you're, as you're cruising along in the, in the session, and it just feels like you're hitting one wave of frustration after another, that it's just whatever it is, whether it's something you ate, whether it's the weather, whatever it may be, if this is, this is just frustrating, then I say cut it short. Cut it short. So there's a middle way there. I would suggest having a schedule, and I wouldn't suggest sticking by it too strictly. And then, of course, from week to week, and a number of you have already shared your schedules with me, I reviewed it, talked with you about them, uh, then as the weeks go by, then always feel free to start modifying the schedule. Okay, And then I, that's what, what I'm here for, to help you do that, to try to maximize the benefit that you derive from the practice. Okay? It's all clear? Okay, good. Anything else come up?
Yes. Go ahead. Remind me of your name, though. Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, thank you. Yes, now I remember. Click. So uh, this is um, a question that I hope will be useful to others. Um, good, it's, good. Uh, well, not so theoretical, but you're on the, on the subject of um, interest. Of interest. Um, you talked about how to generate interest as a Buddhist with a Buddhist worldview. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very dear friend who's a Christian, and yeah. he's very interested in meditation. He practices meditation, but, um, and again, I, I haven't talked to him enough, enough about this to mm -hmm. be sure that I'm not missing something, but I think he may not really have considered enough like how his uh, Christian faith and his interest in meditation go along with each other. Right, right. Because for him, his liberation is guaranteed at the end of his life. Yeah. whether he meditates or not. Right, right. So um, for those of us who have friends who are interested in meditation but are Christian, mm -hmm. what can we, um, what could they consider uh, in terms of generating interest in meditation from day to day? Right. First of all, there is one of my books to which I devoted a lot of, a lot of attention, a lot of care in tracking a Christian lumrim that is a sequence of meditations that are authentically Christian, mainstream Christianity. I didn't, I didn't choose one heretic. You know, it's easy to choose people who are kind of banished by the church or condemned or what have you. I didn't choose any of them. I mean, and I like some of their writings. Meister Eckhart, I love his writings, but the church felt pretty uneasy about him and others as well. No, I chose only ones who are really embraced by their own tradition and, in, and revered by their own tradition. Going back to the Desert Fathers, then on into the early medieval period, into the, into the uh, Greek, Greek Orthodox tradition, into the Roman Catholic tradition. And the last one that I really highlighted was a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church, Nicholas of Cusa, incredible man, and very, very deep as a contemplative. And so I've tracked there in this book, Mind in the Balance, Meditation in Science, Buddhism, and Christianity, a whole sequence of meditations all drawn from authentic, very deep, and highly respected sources. That's a very important point. None of them are kind of Buddhified. You know, trying to dish, you know, fancy them up with Buddhist terminology or anything. I just deal with their terminology. Starts with mindfulness of breathing. There it is from the Christian tradition, and then I go from there, drawing only from Christian sources, settling the mind in its natural state. That's there, and then awareness of awareness. That's there, and then something, especially in the writings of Nicholas of Cusa, that looks an awful lot like Dzogchen. Okay, all there. Christian sources. Now, there's one ex outstanding book, and I have no idea whether it's translated into Spanish, but it's really a wonderful book. And it's by a Christian. Uh, he's of the Augustinian order, and he's also an academic. But he's an academic that really writes with heart, and that's the book uh, Into the Silent Land, Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. And he's a professor at Villanova University. He and I have corresponded. He really knows his stuff, and he's written some outstanding books. That's one of them. I think it's, that's my favorite of his, and it's 100% Christian. There's no references to Buddhism or anything else. It's authentic, it's deep, and it's really marvelous practice. So to just, number one, just you know, whether or not you think death gives automatic liberation or not, what do you think this life is for? What would be pleasing to Jesus? What, why, are you just here to wait? Is human existence so you get born and then just wait? Get your beliefs in, beliefs in order, be good, be ethical, and then wait? Is that really what you think Jesus had in mind when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? 
And he gave so many parables. He spoke of the kingdom of heaven within. You really want to postpone this? Is this why you were created, so you could wait it out? Then wouldn't it really be better to have a shorter life, so you have to wait less? I mean, if I'm in line, I'd rather be at the front of the line rather than the end of the line. Wouldn't it be just cooler to die soon? And is that really, what the, is that really the message of Jesus? Die soon so you can get liberated faster? That's pathetic. It's such a weird warping of everything that Jesus embodied and everything that he taught. So something quite sad happened to the Christian tradition as a whole, right at the rise of modernity, the rise of modern science, and that is prior to that point. Obviously, all of the great traditions have had serious problems. Buddhism also. I mean, human mental afflictions get into it and they screw things up. That's just because we're human. But prior to the rise of modernity, prior to the 17th century, you look back at the, the, the writings and the teachings of the Desert Fathers. Man, were they not waiting, just biding their time, you know, to get a free, free lunch when they die. And you go to the Greek Orthodox, you go to the great, the great contemplatives of the, of, the, of the Western Christian tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, and man, these people were dedicated. They were intense. They were doing what Jesus actually said, with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. Love God. Well, what does that mean? Just, gosh, God, I really, really, really love you. <laughs> this is so lame. Such a ridiculous interpretation. St. Augustine himself said, what is meant by amor dei, love of God? Just, gee, God, I really love you a bunch. You know, I mean, it becomes sappy. No, well, Christianity is not a sappy tradition, not when one understands it. And he said, St. Augustine said, there's hardly any greater authority. After St. Paul, it's St. Augustine. He's the next big one. He said, Amor Dei means the passionate longing to know God. Well, the passionate longing doesn't mean hang out, I'm going to drink my pina colada until I die, you know, and then I'll get a freebie. You know, it's like every moment, every breath, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? So the sad thing that happened was with the rise of modernity, the contemplative tradition of Christianity took a nosedive, almost, almost got snuffed out. So it had been alive in, in the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Nestorian Church, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church, of course, in multiple traditions. And modernity came out, and we became so extroverted, so outward-looking, and that whole impetus of the spiritual life got kind of gobbled up and consumed by the Protestant ethic of just work hard and please God with your actions out in the world. Well, that's all very well. Sure, we should work hard, and if we can do good works in the world. But to let that totally eclipse Jesus' other teachings. And what about that phrase, it's easier for, the, for, a for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven? Are we just thinking, just joking? You know? Do you think we, he had his tongue in his cheek when he was saying that? You know, I'm, I'm not scolding anybody, but I'm saying, wait a minute. Haven't we, hasn't this tradition kind of gone way overboard on the free lunch notion? Why would he say something like that unless he meant it? Why would he say something like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect if we're such damaged goods that the only way we can possibly gain liberation is by dying and getting a free gift? So something's happened over the last 400 years that I think has really taken the, the sulk, the life force, out of the Christian tradition. And it's a tragedy because it's a great life force. It's tremendous vitality profound transformative ability. And they're ignoring it. So sad. 
I mean, if they didn't have anything in the first place, we just said, why don't you just come over to our side of the fence? Come over to the Buddhists. We can fill you in. You know, we'll help you out here. But when they have such a rich tradition themselves and they ignore it, that's really sad. You know, like Lama Yishe has given the example years, ago, years and years ago of a person who's living in a little hut, dirt floor, in total poverty, you know, barely eking out an existence. And then a person comes along and says, why are you living in such poverty? Get your broom out and sweep, sweep, sweep the floor of your, of your, little, your little hut here. And you sweep, 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 and you find you're sitting on a treasure. Gold, diamonds, jewels. It was there all along. But you're living in total poverty because you never, never bothered to sweep your own floor and see what was the treasure lying just beneath the surface. So that's what the Christian tradition is, I think. You know, they're eking out an existence. So many of them just skimming the surface of their own tradition without discovering the tremendous depths of Jesus' own teachings and that of the Desert Fathers and so forth and so on. So I think if they're really serious about wanting to please their creator or, or please Jesus and show him they really value his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection, then the way to please God would be to do what he said and discover the kingdom of heaven within because I didn't make up those words. Those are Jesus' words. So they should start taking their own tradition more seriously and not buy into this devaluation of just pretending like Jesus didn't mean it whenever he said anything other than the free lunch business. So that's what I think. Could be wrong. That's what I think. So they have just tremendous sources of inspiration and wisdom in their own tradition. And if their Buddhist friends can sometimes help them kind of ignite them to shed a light on their own tradition or maybe even draw something from Buddhism that's completely in accord with their own tradition without deviating, without smudging. But if they can find practices from Buddhism that can really help them lead their, you know, live their own ideals, that'd be fantastic. I'll end on this note. Years ago, my father is a very mainstream Christian, very mainstream, not a contemplative, not a meditator. He's a Protestant, uh, quite conservative, not fundamentalist, but very mainstream. And uh, so he's watched with a lot of interest what I've been doing for the last 40 years. And, uh, but maybe 20 years ago, it's a long time ago now, 15, 20 years ago, he heard the Dalai Lama interviewed. He watched the Dalai Lama being interviewed on the local television channel. There was a very conservative, probably Christian conservative commentator that was interviewing the Dalai Lama. My father watched the interview as this man was posing one question after another to the Dalai Lama. And after he watched it, my father got in touch with me and he said, you know, I listened to the Dalai Lama answer the questions by this conservative Christian moderator. And he said, you know, he really practices what Jesus taught. The Dalai Lama, he really practices what Jesus taught. He's very impressed. So that's where the common ground is. Virtue is virtue. And to be a, a true Christian means to devote oneself utterly heart, soul, might, everything to the cultivation of virtue. And anything less, I think, would be a disappointment. Make Jesus' teachings, his life, kind of... What was, his, what was the point? He just could have sent down a little, a little flyer saying, believe and you're free. Believe and you get a free lunch when you die. That would have been enough. You know, just write it in the heavens. Believe this and this and this and you get, you get liberated when you die. That would have been enough. But that's not what he did. No. No. Yes, Maria.
My question goes more on the lucid dreaming technique. Mm. I've been trying that for the past two nights that you suggested, mm -hmm. and I have had like very awful nights. <laughs> awful nights in what sense? Waking. I, mean, I haven't slept very much. Aha. Just I, I woke up like for three or four times <laughs> along the night. Yeah, yeah. So it's and taking a bite out of your shamatha practice. <laughs> yes, I think a little bit. I think it is, yeah. And um, for a moment I thought, w once after I woke up and I thought I was probably going back to the dream like in a lucid way, I don't know if I was really awake or I was really in the lucid dream. Mm -hmm. Then I just forgot and I guess I, I went to sleep and then I woke up again at three and then again at five and then again, mm -hmm. you know, and so it was yeah. never ending. That's, that's one of the things that, what can I do for, like to keep on practicing but not discouraging yeah. and rest, of course. Mm -hmm. And then the other question is, I'm not sure if I understand very well the objective of lucid dreaming, mm. I guess <coughs> something of, to, like, would it be a way to access the substrate uh, consciousness or how? Can you what's elaborate a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, what's it for? Again, using the zoom lens to go into wide angle, okay, getting lucid dreams, being, being, knowing that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, very cool. A lot of things are cool. Ice cream is very cool. But, you know, what's the big picture? Well, there's not much of a big picture on ice cream. It's just, there it is, ice cream. <coughs> and here's something, lucid dreaming, when we get the, the wide-angle lens, the bigger picture, it winds up having the potential to be enormously meaningful. And lucid dreaming can be enormously trivial. I mean, for some people, I, I know of one well-known, I'll just sci say scientist, because I, I don't want anybody to know his name, but one very well-known scientist, he found he had a knack, a knack for lucid dreaming, he used it for dream sex. He maxed out, his, you know, you want to have sex with Marilyn Monroe, or with uh, Richard Gere? And, yeah. <laughs> Whatever, that's what he was doing. You know, he would just find that he could call up any sexual partner he liked and yippee-yay, <laughs> And so it can be very, very, tri very trivial. And it can also be immensely meaningful. So the first point, as soon as you were speaking, I, I, reflect, I re recall something that Stephen, Stephen LeBarish has commented on, and that is what's called false awakening. They're quite interesting. A false, awa a false awakening, yeah. And that's when you're dreaming, and then you wake up, and you carry on thinking you're awake, but in fact you're still sleeping. And you're still dreaming, but you thought you woke up from the dream, and in fact you're simply in the next, next phase of a dream, which is just the opposite of lucid dreaming, right? So that can happen. It's not uncommon. But the, the primary response would be that I'd really strongly encourage you not to let your interest or dedication to the practice of lucid dreaming and dream yoga deter from the primary reason for being here for these eight weeks. Um, and that is this, you're in shamatha land. I mean, this whole environment is created to be as optimal as possible to be able to practice shamatha. And as people like Alma and others can attest, shamatha lands are not very common. They don't grow on trees. They're very, actually very hard to find. R remarkably hard to find. Yeah, really. Remarkably hard to find. Um, and here we are. We found one, you know. And we're here for eight weeks. And so the first thing is to get a, get a good night's sleep and not let anything take away from that. And so if you're getting a good night's sleep, that's the first step towards lucid dreaming. Okay? The, second text, uh, the second step towards lucid dreaming is to begin to increase your dream recall. So you have greater recollection, clarity, vividness of what happened in the dream. Maybe start chronicling <coughs> them. Um, an adjacent or kind of parallel track 
would be to develop and succeed in the resolve of not moving when you wake up. So just that. But did you remember or not, right? To anticipate something in the future, not knowing when it will occur. When it does occur, recognizing it. Having recognized it, remembering to do something. Because that's really critical. Because this is the point, that is when you're, th this whole issue, there are critical areas here. One is the anticipatory memory. In the future, something will happen. I don't know when it will happen, but it will, when it does happen, I will recognize it. That's really critical. You don't have that, then, then you're not going to get off the ground, right? But it's not, not only recognizing when this event that will take place, when it does take place, but it's also remembering to do something when it takes place. Right? So a little game that Stephen LeBerge, it's a game, it really is a, it's a gimmick, but it's a very good gimmick that he does in all of his 10-day workshops, and I've done six of them with him, co-teaching with him. You might recall if you've read my books or heard teachings on this regard. But in a 10-day seminar, usually we'll have 20, 25 people in the seminar, uh, and we're there then just for lucid dreaming, right? That's what it's all about. So people are sleeping as much as possible. Breakfast isn't until 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> really, squeeze as much, you know, if you can possibly stay asleep. Okay, maybe I can squeeze another half an hour and I'll try, you know? <laughs> and so it's a really a tough job, you know, especially when we hold them in Hawaii. <laughs> and so, um, Karasa, so what was the point? Ah, yeah, the game. And that is there we are for 10 days in a really lovely environment. We've got 20, 25 people. And by day one or two, just as soon as we settle in, then here's the game. And that is over the next several days, then whenever you receive something, somebody gives you a fork, gives you salt at the dinner table, gives you anything, but it has to be physical. It's not giving love or giving the respect or something like intangible. But just gives you something. Here, take this from their hand to your hand, whenever that happens. But you don't know when it's going to happen. People don't do this every hour on the hour. Or any, you don't know. But probably over the course of a day, these are not silent retreats. They're socially engaged retreats, a lot of interaction. Over the course of the days, it's very likely somebody's going to say, oh, uh, you know. And when that happens, as soon as it happens, you have to recognize it. As soon as you, you recognize, I've just been given something. You must recognize it. Having recognized it, you must do something. And the do something is turn to that person and wink. Right? Wink. Just go like that. Or any, just show them, I got, I, I got it. Nodding, wink, but just something quiet so you don't, you know, you're not trying to call attention to yourself. If you just, if you and I are in the, in the, in the retreat and you've just given me something and oh, I say, oh, thanks Maria, and I don't do it, then you come right over to me and you give me a star, a little star. And I'm wearing a little placard here and you've just shown, shame on you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just shot you down, so you're like a fighter pilot, and you just shot me down, I just, except, except it doesn't go on your, on your airplane, it goes on my airplane, and that just shows me, I was shot down once, Maria, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have your name on it. But then, you, then, of course, as soon as you see that you're, you're displaying to the world, you know, because everybody's wearing their placards, they're showing how many stars you got. Right? And the days go by, well, very quickly, people don't want to have a lot of stars. Because it's advertising to the world, look how mindless I am. You know? 
So it becomes a little competitive, and people also know that at the end of the 10 days, the person with the least stars gets a prize. And the person with the most stars, well, you just have to live with that for the rest of your life. <laughs> so it's, it's, a cute it's, you know, it's a cute game, and everybody takes it as a game. So it, never do we embarrass anybody. You know? The embarrassment's built in. People can create that for themselves. <laughs> but the idea is very smart. And that is, it will happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. When it does, recognize it and do something. Well, that's exactly it. You find your dream signs. You find your dream signs. It's meeting a certain person, it's in a place, it's an activity, what have you. When's that dream sign going to occur? Maybe it's standing in line for dinner. Well, that you can kind of know, but maybe you have some snacks in your room, eating, whatever it may be, uh, going for a walk. But, what it, but it's usually something that happens to you, not something you deliberately do, right? The dream signs, right? Well, the whole idea is when the dream sign crops up, when it happens, that you recognize that it's happened, that's the prospective memory, and you do something, and the doing something is doing a state check. Either writing something, taking it out of your field of vision and looking again, seeing whether it's the same, that's a very, very strong sign, uh, check, almost 100%. I mean, If it's changed, you can assume you're dreaming. Um, or just jumping straight up. So that's the idea. Well, to start that, to start that, having this prospective memory, tonight, as soon as I wake up, I'm going to recognize it as soon as possible, before I'm wide awake and moved around, I'm going to recognize when I'm just emerging into wakefulness, and I'm going to do something, and what I'm going to do is not move. And not moving, I'm going to see if I can retrace my steps. Okay? But having said that, do this really light, uh, lightly for the time being. Don't make a big deal out of it. Because to emphasize the point, once again, shamatha is the basis for dream yoga. Dream yoga is not the basis for shamatha. And now finally, as our time is gradually running out, uh, what's the point of dream yoga? Well, I translated one marvelous text called The Natural Liberation in Tibetan. That is an English translation of the Tibetan. I don't think it's been translated in Mex uh, Mexican into Spanish, <laughs> but um, you can, I'm sure you can read English, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic text. And it's about six bardos, so six transitional phases. And one of these is being alive. Within being alive, dreaming is a transitional phase. It's a type of, it's a bardo. It's, it starts and it ends, and it's in between non-dreaming states, right? And so in that text, then Padmasambhava, because it's a, it's a earth therma attributed to Padmasambhava, then he points out that there are in fact six platforms from which you can launch off to enlightenment. Six platforms. So, so, for example, it said that Tsongkhapa, the great Tsongkhapa, that, number one, he was an impeccable monk. You could almost kind of define an impeccable monk based upon his ethics. He was just impeccable. Now, he achieved a very high state of realization in stage of completion practice in Vajrayana. So he could have engaged in certain practices. It would be legitimate for him, even as a monk. But he decided not to. It was important. This is part of his offering to the world. Here's what a pure monastic discipline is, is, is about. So it is said that he did not, achieve, did not manifestly achieve enlightenment in that lifetime. He achieved it in the bardo. He achieved it in the bardo, right? And some of his disciples, like Kiddu, <coughs> had to direct visions of Tsongkhapa actually achieving enlightenment in the bardo. So the bardo bardo, that's a period. There's the bardo of Dhammata, very transitional with all of the very archetypal forms. There's the bardo of becoming. Well, that's the standard bardo of moving from here and there. Uh, there's the bardo of conception, of taking birth. There's the bardo of being alive, practicing shamatha and vipassana. There's the bardo of dream yoga. 
So dreaming is one platform from which you can, within that context, practice vipassana and gain insight not only into the substrate, which is relative ground state of the ordinary mind. Of course you can do that, that's not very hard. But within that context, you can practice vipassana, gain realization of emptiness, including emptiness of your own mind. That's pretty central. You can practice stage regeneration. You can practice vajrayana. You can practice pure vision. As you really purify, you may gain direct access to Buddhas and receive teachings from the Buddhas. You may, and now I'm speaking from faith, but heck, I've got faith. Why shouldn't I speak from it? Um, the Dalai Lama in the book Sleeping, Dreaming, and Dying, which probably has been translated into Spanish, hasn't it? It's been translated into a lot of languages by now. In that book, which was a, it was based on a marvelous uh, meeting we had back in 1992, in that when he comments, something well known in the context of the six yogas of Naropa and the teachings on dream yoga within those six, his holiness commented that, that it is also possible if one becomes very adept in dream yoga within the context of stage of completion practice. So you're practicing stage of completion and you're practicing dream yoga and you're fusing these two. So each one is you know, very well informed by the other. He said that it's possible to develop, as the whole tradition says, for at least a thousand years, uh, that it's possible to develop something called a special dream body. A special dream body. This is something you generate. You, you generate. And you generate it out of prana. It's an energy body. And you generate it by the power of meditation. And having generated it, formed it, it's almost like an energy Clone. You generate it and then you can send it out. And you're sending it out with your awareness and you can send it out in this intersubjective space-time of the rest of the world. So if His Holiness is giving teachings in Hungary, which he did very recently, and your body's stuck here, well, you just check your clock and say, okay, but what time is the teaching starting in Hungary? Oh, that time. Okay, good. I'm going to make a point of being asleep at that time go to sleep, and then send your special dream body off to Hungary and get the Dalai Lama's teachings there. And you'll be an invisible spirit. Nobody else will see you, but don't count on the Dalai Lama not seeing you. <laughs> I wouldn't have bet my life on that one. And so you can actually rove, rove about in space. And you're here, there. you haven't become omniscient. It's not like you're all-seeing. You've, you've sent out an emissary, a, an energy clone, but with your awareness, and you may actually perceive what, what is there. So that's pretty big. That could be useful. Okay? So it's good for a lot of things, including achieving enlightenment. Okay? Good. That brings us to 6 o'clock. So 
have a good night's sleep. That's very important. Get a good night's sleep, and I'll see you tomorrow morning.